Thank you for tuning in to the Liberty Church Online Podcast. This is Pastor Andrew, and whether you're listening in the car or at the gym, or maybe just sitting down with a cup of coffee and an open Bible in front of you, we hope that through this message, God will meet you right where you are and help you grow in your personal relationship with Him. So let's jump right into this week's study of God's Word together. Special welcome to all the fathers in the house. Happy Father's Day. We are glad you're here. We appreciate you guys and what you contribute to our lives and our families. And uh, thrilled that you're spending part of your Sunday, part of your Father's Day with us. But to everybody, man, we're glad to have you. Welcome. If you're new here, um, we call this the House of Friends for a reason. We want you to find it to be a comfortable, friendly place where you can hear the Lord speak to you through worship. And that's what we've been talking about the last five or six weeks is the subject of worship. And uh, I want to approach the subject uh, this way today. You know, whether you're a father or a mother, uh, married or single, uh, young or old, uh, regardless of who you are, what your situation in life is, I'm convinced that God has hardwired all of us with a desire for significance. We'd like to see our lives count. We want, to, we want our lives to mean something. Um, all of us, we, we'd like to think that after we're gone, after we leave this temporary earthly life uh, and go into the life to come, we'd, we'd really like to feel like we left some kind of positive legacy behind. And that's true for everybody, whether you're a father, mother, married, single, young, old, doesn't matter. We have this inborn desire. God put it in us to be significant, to, to feel like our lives matter. And uh, I was reading a kind of a humorous story recently about a lady who, whose life apparently didn't seem to matter that much. Um, her name was Nancy Jones, Nancy Jones. And Nancy Jones lived in a small Midwestern community, and apparently she never accomplished anything noteworthy with her life. Um, she never participated in anything significant. Uh, she did not belong to any groups or any organizations. She never worked at a job for very long, so there was not really a career to speak of, and there was no record of her family. She never married, and she never had children. Well, Nancy Jones grew old and eventually died, and because she didn't have anybody you know, significant in her life or anybody who really knew much about her, it fell to that small town's funeral director to come up with an epitaph for her tombstone. And he was at a loss. He didn't know who she was. He asked around. Nobody knew anything about this Nancy Jones. So he wanted to put something on the tombstone besides her birth date and her death date, but he really didn't know where to go because... Neither he nor anybody else really knew anything about Nancy Jones. Well, he had a good friend in town who worked for the newspaper. He was the sports writer for their local town newspaper. And, and this guy, he was known to have a way with words. He was pretty creative. So he thought, you know, I'm going to ask my friend if he could help me with this project, come up with an epitaph for Nancy Jones' tombstone. So he went down to the newspaper office, and he found his friend, and he said, hey, look, I know you're a sports writer. This isn't really your field of expertise, but you've got a way with words, and, and you're pretty clever, so I'm trying to think of something to put on this lady's tombstone. Nobody knows anything about her. Uh, could you, you know, even though you're a sports writer, could you help me come up with something? And his friend said, sure, no problem. And so supposedly, there in this small town cemetery in the Midwest, there's a tombstone that reads, Here lie the bones of Nancy Jones. 
For her, life held no terrors. She lived an old maid. She died an old maid. No runs, no hits, no errors. Okay? <laughs> okay. And I read that, um, and I started thinking about it. What a tragic thing it would be for any of you, any of us who are God's people, to lead a Nancy Jones kind of life, to be a Nancy Jones Christian, uh, you know, for there to be nothing to show for our lives. You know, as believers in Jesus, our desire should not just to be uh, simply exist for Jesus, but we want to live for Christ. That's what God's called us to. You know, it's possible to have a saved soul and a lost life. As a Christian, you can be merely a spectator or you can be a servant. You can be merely a watcher or you can be a worker. But if you have a desire for your life to count, for it to matter, for to leave some kind of positive legacy behind, well, you've got to open up your life and invite him to use you to make a difference. And God wants that desire to be in each and every one of our hearts. I find it tremendously encouraging to know that God is on the lookout to use ordinary people like you and me to make a difference. He doesn't want your life to, to be insignificant. He wants your life to matter. He wants it to count. And he's given you the ability, he's given all of us the ability, and he's given all of us opportunities to do something significant, something of eternal significance. You know, the, I love the uh, Bible verse that I shared with you, church family, in the e-note this last week. It's really been one of my life verses for years. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. And here's what it says. The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth so that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Isn't that a great picture? I mean, God's eyes are just scoping the earth, you know, east to west, north to south, and he's on the lookout for somebody whose heart is yielded to him. And he says, that's the person, that's the man, that's the woman, that's the mother, that's the father, that's the young person, that's the old person, that's the married person, that's the single person, that person whose heart is loyal to me, faithful to me, I want to show myself strong on their behalf. I want to make their life count. And what we're going to see in the passage of Scripture we're looking at this morning is that the key to your heart becoming completely His, completely the Lord's, the key is worship. That's the key. True worship will change your heart. True worship will put your life in a place where God can show Himself strong through you. And He can use your life for something eternally significant. That's the power of true worship. In his best-selling book, The Celebration of Discipline, I want you to see what Richard Foster says about this subject that we've been talking about the last six weeks, worship. He writes, if worship doesn't change us, then it has not been worship. If worship does not propel us toward greater surrender to the Lord, it has not been worship. To stand before the Holy One of Eternity is to change. And that's what we're going to see happen in the passage of a real person, a guy who lived in the Old Testament, a prophet named Isaiah. You know, Isaiah was on his way to leading a Nancy Jones type of life. You know, nothing really eternally significant happening in him or, or through him. But through worship, he surrendered himself to the Lord, and God uses him to make an incredible difference. 
He encounters the Lord, and he is changed forever. And the same thing can happen to you and to me. So today I want to talk about how worship changes us, how worship changes us. If you're following along in a Bible, we're in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 6, and we're going to see four things that God can do in your life through worship. He does these things in Isaiah's life. Now, uh, in every worship experience we have with the Lord, and we'll talk about what that means in a few moments, but in every worship experience, God may not do all four of these things um, like he does here with Isaiah. That's not, tip, that's not always the way he works. But at least one of those things will happen when you and I worship the Lord. And, and whether it's one or whether it's two or whether it's three or whether it's all four, encountering the Lord through true worship changes us. It makes a difference. And it puts us in a place where God can use our lives to count for him. So what I want to do is, um, is give you four, real simple to remember, four key words as we walk through this passage, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, and the first word is comfort. Okay, these are things God provides for us, God does in us when we're worshiping Him. The first word is comfort. And maybe that's the only word that you need to hear this morning. So do you have some anxiety in your life today? Are your troubles keeping you off balance and unsettled? Did you come into worship this morning preoccupied with some concerns, some anxieties that maybe you're at a place you're just not sure how it's going to work out and you're not even confident in the next step? You know, there's a Bible verse found in Luke chapter 10, verse 41, and Jesus is talking to one of his followers, a lady named Martha. And Jesus says to her, he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. And some of you are writing that reference down, Luke 10, 41, and claiming, that's my life verse. Okay? That's my life verse. <laughs> you know, I'm worried and troubled about many things. Um, but listen, you don't want that to be your life verse. God doesn't want that to be your life verse. Worried and troubled about many things. Because God knows that when we're worried and troubled and anxious, it causes our lives to be unproductive for him. We're so preoccupied with whatever it is that's troubling us and concerning to us that we're unable to produce fruit for him. And therefore, our lives don't count the way that God would intend them to. How many opportunities do we miss to make a difference in the lives of others when we become so consumed and concerned with our own problems and cares and worries and anxieties. Now listen, God cares about those too, and God, but God wants to provide you peace. God wants to provide you some hope in Him so that He can use you to make a difference in the lives of others. And Isaiah found and experienced God's comfort and God's, stress, uh, God's uh, freedom from stress and anxiety in this passage we're looking at today. So some of you are familiar with Isaiah chapter 6 and these verses, but let me give you a little bit of background because it really kind of puts it in context for us. The year was 739 B.C. when Isaiah wrote these words. And uh, believe it or not, 739 B.C., there was a conflict brewing in the Middle East. Surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> not much has changed in 3,000 years. There's always a conflict brewing in the Middle East. But this particular crisis was hitting home for Isaiah because the mighty Assyrian army 
Uh, Assyria was the superpower in those days. Uh, the mighty Assyrian army was marching against Jerusalem, God's people. And um, Isaiah was troubled by this. He was concerned by this. And the people were concerned and anxious and worried because Assyria had kind of circled Jerusalem. Okay, that's the next people. That's the next place we're going to conquer. And they were in route. But to make matters worse, however, the good king of Israel, King Uzziah, had recently died that very same year. And so he le- with his passing, he left the nation without a trusted leader in their time of need. So the Assyrian armies bearing down upon them, and Uzziah, the trusted king, he's died. Now Uzziah had reigned in Israel for 52 years. He'd had a wonderful run. Uh, the nation prospered under his leadership. Uh, they, Israelites, they won most of the battles they fought. Uh, Uzziah, he, he, some of you have read about him in the Old Testament. He wasn't a perfect king, but he was a good and an honest and a trustworthy leader. Again, the nation prospered under his leadership, and the people loved him. The people respected him, and the people were comfortable with Uzziah. Actually, he reigned so long, over five decades, that Uzziah was the only king many of the Israelites, including Isaiah, ever knew. They just grew up with with Uzziah being on the throne. And again, they knew him to be faithful and good. But now he's dead. And you've got the Assyrian army marching toward Jerusalem. Their trusted king Uzziah has passed from the scene. And as we pick up the account here in Isaiah chapter 6, you can just kind of sense that he's understandably anxious and concerned about these things. But then look what happens. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. So Isaiah has this vision in which he sees a throne, and it's not unlike the throne that Uzziah used to sit on. But now Uzziah's dead. However, the throne isn't empty. Somebody else is seated on the throne. And it doesn't take Isaiah very long at all to realize that the one seated on the throne now, in place of Uzziah, is far greater than Uzziah ever was. For it is the Lord of glory. In the, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. And he continues to describe that experience in verse 2. He says, Above him were seraphim, you know, it's a type of angel, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Well, through this awe-inspiring, impressive vision that Isaiah has, it becomes a little refresher to to the prophet of the bigness and the greatness and the majesty of the Lord. And you can just kind of hear God communicating to Isaiah in these moments when he was hurting and stressed out and anxious 
God's saying, look, Isaiah, I know things are bad right now. You got the Assyrian army bearing down on you. Your friend, the good king Uzziah, has passed from the scene. I get that. I see those realities. That's part of your situation right now. But I just want to remind you in these moments of worship that kings come and kings go, nations rise and nations fall, but I'm still on the throne. Nothing's changed about me. I'm still the king, the ultimate ruler of this universe, and as my child, you can take confidence and find hope in me. You see, that's what worship can do when you encounter the Lord. It right-sizes God for us. Worship helps us to remember the bigness of God compared to the smallness of our worries. And this point has come up several times in this series, but it, but it does bear mentioning once again. In a chaotic, confusing, crumbling world, worship reminds us that God is still on the throne. And let me just get real practical, church family, right here, because we, we, I think most of us understand this, we need to know this, but between Sundays, when we gather, you know, like this for a worship service, between Sundays, your enemy, the devil, has some strategies for you. He wants to get you untracked in your faith. He wants your life to be unproductive for the Lord. He doesn't want your life to count, basically. He'll do whatever he can to get you off track. And one of the strategies that he uses between Sundays is to bombard you and I with philosophies and perspectives that do not take God into the equation. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, uh, most of social media, most of news media, movies, music, many of the people you work with or people you go to school with, I mean, they're living lives and they're, and they're sending messages and philosophies and perspectives that do not take God into the equation. It's as though, for them, God doesn't exist. And you and I were never, to, we were never created to live our lives as if God wasn't part of the equation. And yet we're bombarded with so many worldly and earthly philosophies and perspectives that, that don't remind us that God's on the throne. They break down our faith. They're, they're faith-quenching philosophies and perspectives. And until you and I start to reorient our lives, and we talked about a couple weeks ago, that vertical, that vertical perspective, until we get that right, well, we will be troubled and anxious and worried. So how can you and I be reminded that God is on the throne the same way Isaiah was? Through worship. We must not make the mistake of underestimating the importance of these moments around God's word, of these moments of singing songs to God, um, of moments in your own private time when you've opened up God's word and let his word speak to you in those quiet moments of prayer between you and the Lord or in the car singing a worship song to the Lord or, or opening up a, a good uh, book uh, that directs your attention to the Lord. And whatever it might be, we, we cannot underestimate how important those moments are because we know the evil one has a strategy to, to get our minds off the Lord and to start thinking that God doesn't exist, he's not part of the equation, Isaiah had to be brought back to the reality that God was on the throne, that God figures greatly into every occasion for his people. And that was accomplished 
through worship. You see, whether it's a small group Bible study that you're in or reading your Bible on your own or a worship service like this one or whatever it might be, those kinds of expressions of worship have a way of centering us and reminding us that no matter how bad the news reports are, no matter what the latest gloom and doom that everybody's talking about, hey, the Assyrian army is closing in and Uzziah's dead, hey, all, okay, those things are true, God's still on the throne. You can find comfort. You can move from being stressed to finding rest when you really grasp the truth that he's on the throne. It's how worship changes us. But it's not only that. How does worship change us? Well, yeah, through worship, God provides comfort, but also through worship, God provides conviction. So Isaiah has this encounter with the living God, and through it, he develops a greater awareness, not only of the holiness of the Lord, but also in comparison to God's holiness, he develops a greater awareness to his own sinfulness and his own need for redemption, his own need for the Lord. Here's a relatively famous verse from this passage in verse 5. Look how he responds. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, what would happen if we we're in a worship service like this one and, you know, we're just kind of going through God's word and somebody yells out, woe is me. I mean, some of you just run, oh, what's wrong? What's wrong? Can I get you something? I mean, that kind of conviction in which you experience the Lord's presence in such a, in such a real way, you can't help but feel, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? We should, we should welcome experiences of conviction in our lives. Whether it's, um, because there's some stuff wrong with us, by the way, okay, for all of us. So, so when we come to a church service or we're reading the Bible, has that ever happened to you? And you're, coming, you're reading God's truth and you think you're doing okay and then you're exposed to God's truth and again, you're worshiping him and, and wow, a verse or a, or, a, or a thought just captures your mind and you're like, whoa, I thought I was doing all right. I thought my life was on the right path, but man, God is convicting me. He is challenging me to make a course correction here. Those are good things. Those are healthy things. Those are expressions of worship when the Holy Spirit convicts you. That's an indication, by the way, that you're part of God's family. You should welcome conviction in response to worship and the word of the Lord. And uh, Isaiah just says, wow, he's overcome. Whoa, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips. Here's why we need these experiences, like conviction, okay? Um, I think this is true for all of us. We can do this even subconsciously sometimes. But we can have a false sense of our own morality by comparing ourselves with other people. I mean, again, I think sometimes we do it subconsciously. But, you know, we're, none of us are perfect. We say that here at Liberty. No perfect people allowed. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than that guy. I mean, in our twisted sinful world, it is not difficult to find some person or group that's more sinful than you are. There's always somebody who's taking it to a whole new level, right? And so, so our, our tendency sometimes is to, I'm doing pretty good. 
I mean, last Sunday, if you were here, we were talking about the prophet Habakkuk. Remember Habakkuk? Okay, Lord, the Israelites aren't perfect, but come on, we're better than the Babylonians. Right? I can't believe you're using them. And that's just our tendency to compare ourselves with others. And as a result, we get this false sense of morality that, you know, I'm not so bad, you know, compared to those other pagans. I mean, I'm actually doing pretty good. But here's what worship does. Worship clears up our vision. It enlightens us because we're encountering the presence of a holy God. And when we step into his presence and when we compare ourselves with his righteousness, okay, there's some things that need to get fixed here. There's some, there's some ways that I'm not on the, the right path. We need worship to do that for us. In a very practical sense, have you ever considered yourself pretty good at something? Like you, maybe you have some skill that you're pretty good at um, or, or some knowledge base that you think, hey, I know a lot about this subject. But then you get into the presence of somebody who takes it to a whole new level and is a lot better than you. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> okay, I guess I'm not as far along as I, I thought I was. When I was uh, in high school back in Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, I played on our high school's varsity basketball team uh, my junior year, starting five, okay? I know it's hard to believe. Um, but our, my school's basketball team won the national, Indiana National State Championship in 2023, this year, okay? Uh, 40 years ago when I was on the team, nah, no, no, no. We, we weren't anywhere close to being that good, but recently. But still, you know, I, you know, teenage boys are delusional anyway, but I probably wasn't as good at basketball as I thought I was, but I thought I was pretty good. And I looked around, I have a Top five in our school, right? I mean, better than these other stiffs. So that's all I had to compare myself with. You know, I thought I was, I was pretty good. Well, one summer, um, my basketball coach, I think it was maybe before my junior year, he said, uh, you got to go to this basketball camp and, uh, you know, sharpen some skills that you have and it'd be good for you. And so I said, great, yeah, this, I'll do that. So I went to this basketball camp uh, in Indiana for a week. And um, one of the guest instructors at the camp was a guy that probably most of you have never heard of. His name was Dave Colescott. Uh, he was uh, a recent Mr. Basketball in Indiana back in the 70s. as was kind of a legend in the state. And he wasn't that much older than me. He was like 20 years old. And I think at the time he was playing for uh, Dean Smith uh, at UNC. Um, so Dave Colescott, again, not a household name, not Michael Jordan, not LeBron James, Dave Colescott. He was one of the guest instructors at this camp. And uh, I... I <laughs> I remember it was after one of the sessions and uh, me and a couple other guys, you know, teenage boys like me, high schoolers, we were just hanging around the gym and Dave Colescott came in and uh, wanted, to, wanted to play a game with us. You know, just kind of just a little three on three, you know, with these high school boys and, and 20 year old Dave Colescott. And we were all like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's see how we measure up to Mr. Basketball in Indiana. And uh, again, he wasn't that much older than us. So we played a little three-on-three -three there in the gym with Dave Colescott, and real quick, we learned that he was the man among boys, all right? Real moment of clarity for us high school punks who thought we were pretty good at basketball. We realized very soon that he was at another level than we were or that we would ever get to when it came to basketball. And in the 
moral and spiritual realm, I think that's kind of what happened to Isaiah here. You know, Isaiah's thinking he's pretty good. Uh, He's a prophet, right? I mean, he loves the Lord. He serves the Lord. I'm a lot better than these other wicked people that I serve. Then he comes into the presence of God in a real moment of clarity. He sees God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's perfection. And what's his response? Whoa, whoa. I'm not nearly as good as I thought I was. I'm undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And all of us need that reality check to keep us humble. And God provides that through worship. But here's what I want you to see. You know, through conviction, sometimes we feel shame and we feel guilt because we see how our lives don't measure up. But God never wants to leave us there. God never wants, us, wants to leave us there, stewing in our conviction and guilt and shame and regret. And he doesn't leave Isaiah there. So the third word in our passage is the word cleansing, cleansing. So let's go back to our text in verse 5. Again, in this worship experience that Isaiah the prophet is having, and he says, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. But then look what happens in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Wow, what a beautiful picture there. And that's the reason God puts these things in the Old Testament for us. All these encounters that God has with people in the Old Testament, they're all designed to point us to our relationship with Jesus. And that's the picture here. You know, we realize our sinfulness, we realize our brokenness, our need of a Savior. We're convicted of our sin. And then God comes along and says, I got a solution for your sin. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to purify you through the precious blood of my son, Jesus Christ. You can be forgiven. You can be wiped clean. You can be made pure as the driven snow, not on your own effort, but because of my grace and my mercy. And you see, in this worship encounter, not only did Isaiah see that God is holy, 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 but Isaiah also found out that God is rich in mercy and ready to forgive. And and by the way, again, on a very practical note, as we worship the Lord here at our church and we come to God's house and we open up the word and we should welcome and invite the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's, It's good, it's humbling. It's good for all of us, though, to recognize the error of our ways in God's presence. But we should never leave here defeated or discouraged because of our guilt or our shame. Because of the gospel, the good news is that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for that. You can have a right relationship with God. Your sins can be forgiven. You can walk out of here liberated because of his grace and mercy. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And that's what Isaiah experiences right here. His sins are cleansed. He's made new. Well, we began the message by talking about how God wants to make our lives count. Let's circle back to that as we conclude. How does God change us? Well, through comfort, providing conviction, cleansing, but lastly, calling, calling. 
Back when we started this message series about five or six weeks ago, you may recall a simple definition of worship that I provided for you. I said, worship is ascribing worth and value to the Lord through my thoughts, words, and deeds. Worship is ascribing worth and value to the Lord through my thoughts, words, and deeds. And as a result of worshiping God, you see what happens. Our hearts begin to open so that we can receive God's calling in our lives. We can start to understand with more clarity how God wants to use us to make a difference. How God wants to make our lives count. And that's what happened to Isaiah. He's kind of walking through all these things. He gets to the last part and, and God starts to reach out to him and call him into service, into ministry. So look what he says in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. I love it. You see how this worship experience prepares Isaiah to receive his calling from the Lord. Listen, God from the beginning of time had a purpose and a plan for Isaiah's life. He had a mission. He had a call. He wanted Isaiah to go and proclaim this message that God gives him to the people. And that's actually the rest of Isaiah chapter 6. God gives him the message. But I want you to see here where it starts. God issues the call. Who's going to go? Who's going to serve? Who's going to make a difference? Who's going to make their life count? And Isaiah's humble attitude is, here I am. Send me. I'll volunteer. I'm in. True worship changes us from spectators to servants. When we encounter the Lord, it changes us from watchers to workers. Remember, God's on the lookout. He's on the prowl. His eyes are flashing back and forth across the earth. He wants to find people whose hearts are yielded to him, who have an attitude like Isaiah, and say, here I am. Send me. Lord, I I am yours. I belong to you. That's the place worship leads us, when it's true and when it's right. And I just want you to think about this in closing. God wants to send you into a broken, fallen world to make a difference for him. He wants your life to count for something eternally significant. And there's not a single one of us in this room today that God can't use to make a difference. Sometimes he uses us in what we might consider big ways. Other times he uses us in what we might consider small ways. There's really no small ways with God. Every, Every way that God uses us to impact others and to honor him is big in his eyes. But sometimes we start thinking, you know, no, I don't really have that much to offer. You know, I'm just an ordinary person. God loves using ordinary people like you and like me and like Isaiah to make an eternal difference. Don't believe that lie of the devil that there's no opportunities for you. Well, have you opened up your life to him? Have you approached him with that humble attitude? Here I am, send me. God delights in taking ordinary people and making their lives count. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but doesn't that seem to be God's pattern throughout the whole Bible? Just a couple of examples that I jotted down last week. God God has a tendency to use the common, to use the ordinary. When he created the heavens and the earth, what did he choose to make man out of? Gold, 
Uranium? No. The common, ordinary dust of the ground. Now, this is what I'll do. This is how I'll show my majesty, my greatness. I'll create something as magnificent as a person out of dust, common dirt. When God spoke to Moses and called him into service, do you remember how that went? God, God did not use a majestic cedar burning in the wilderness. What did God use? A common, ordinary bush burning in the desert. When God used Joshua to deliver the Israelites and cross the Jordan River, Joshua built a monument to the Lord's faithfulness in that place. He didn't build the monument using the finest marble. He said, go get some common river stones and we'll stack them up here. That'll remind us of how great God is. And when Jesus came, right, the solution to our sin problem, the Savior of the world, when God sent Jesus, he came from Nazareth. Remember what people said? <laughs> Does anything good come out of Nazareth? It's such a common, ordinary town. That seems to be God's pattern. And Christian brother or sister, don't underestimate how God can use your life to make a difference. How God can use your life to count, to leave a legacy. And, and don't underestimate the importance of worship in that. Because it's through worship that, that God gets our hearts to a place where we can say, like Isaiah, here I am, send me. And then provide some clarity to his call on each of our lives.